prominent man of noble character from Elalamek's family. His name was Boaz. Ruth the Moabites asked Naomi, will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? Naomi answered her, go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who is from Elalamek's family. Later, when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they replied. Boaz asked his servant, who was in charge of the harvesters, whose young woman is this? The servant answered, she's the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She asked, will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvesters? She came and had been on her feet since earlier, early morning, except that she had rested a little in the shelter. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. She which, see which field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. She fell face down, bowed to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor with you so that you notice although I am a foreigner? Boaz answered her, Everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and how you came to the people you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward you for, for what you have done and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. My Lord, she said, I have found favor with you for you have comforted and encouraged your servant, although I am not like one of your female servants. At mealtime, Boaz told her, come over here and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. So she sat beside the harvesters and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some leftover. When she got up to gather grain, Boaz ordered his young men, let her even gather grain among the bundles and don't humiliate her. Pull out some stalks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gathered, and it was about 26 quarts of barley. She picked up the grain and went into the town, where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought and she, what she had left over from her meal and gave it to her. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you gather barley today, and where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. Ruth told her mother-in-law who she had worked with and said, the name of the man I worked with is Boaz. When Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the Lord bless him because he was not abandoned his kindness to the living of the dead. Naomi continued, the man is a close relative. He's one of our family redeemers. Ruth the Moabite said, he also told me, stay with my young men until they have finished all of my harvest. So Naomi said to her daughter's-in-law, Ruth, my daughter, it is good for you to work with his female servants so that nothing will happen to you in another field. Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants and gathered grain until the barley and the wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Lisa. Good morning, everyone. I am also Pastor Eric. It's good to be with all of you this morning. 
Today is the official start of the Advent season, and for our Advent series this year, we're looking at the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And you might ask, a number of you um, made comment to me about this over the course of this past week, why Ruth? Why Ruth? Is Ruth what, is, what does the book and the story of Ruth have to do with Christmas? Well, Ruth, as we'll see over the course of these next four or five weeks, is the story where it all ends up. This is a spoiler alert. It's the story of a baby born in Bethlehem who brought hope to a hopeless situation. The gospel writer Matthew goes out of his way to tell us that Ruth is one of Jesus's foremothers. And if you look at the way that the gospel of Matthew begins, it begins with the genealogy. As he's telling the story of Jesus, he says, first you need to understand where Jesus comes from. And at the very beginning of that genealogy, he pulls from the end of the book of Ruth, where Ruth concludes, where Ruth ends. He places that at the beginning of the story of Jesus, telling us, if you want to understand who Jesus is, you need to understand the story of Ruth. So I know this morning we are reading here in chapter 2. It's four chapters in this little book of Ruth. Let's review the, the story where we are picking up. We're jumping right in here in chapter 2. The story of Ruth begins. If you have your Bible, you can look at this. You can open up to chapter 1. It, it begins with a family of refugees. There's a man, Elimelech, his wife, Naomi, and they have two sons. They fled from the land of Israel, from the city of Bethlehem, because of a famine, and they went looking for refuge in Moab. They end up settling in Moab. Their two sons marry and find Moabite wives. And what we need to understand about that, it's a little bit behind the scenes, but Moab at this time was an enemy of the nation of Israel. Uh, not only were they uh, opposed to Israel uh, as far as being a thorn in their side when it came um, to afflicting them in wars and battles, but they actively tried to undermine the faith of Israel. So this fleeing to Moab, this marrying of Moabite women, of the wives of, of um, Naomi and of Elimelech, is a movement away from God. And so we have these refugees in Moab. Tragically, what happens to them? The husband and the two sons, they die. And so we see in chapter 1, we have uh, three widows alone in a patriarchal world. They're grieving. They're vulnerable. They're without security. They're without the protection of a father or of a husband. And so in that world and at that time, they have very little hope. Naomi starts the journey back home. And as she's going back home, she gives a choice to her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, she says, you shouldn't come back with me. There's no hope for you. You are Moabite women. There's no hope for you to find husbands in the land of Israel. Go back. Stay in Moab. But Ruth says, no. I'm staying with you. I'm going with you. Orpah turns back. She takes Naomi up on her offer. So she stays in Moab. And so here we have Naomi, a broken woman, but she comes back home. Naomi and Ruth come back to Bethlehem, and they come looking for refuge. 
Naomi as a hopeless stranger, even in her own hometown. The people don't even recognize her. And Ruth comes to Bethlehem seeking refuge as a foreigner. That's the story in chapter 1. Now we come to chapter 2. The chapter 2 is the story about how they found refuge. It's all about refuge. Look at verse 12. There, I think, is the theme, a beautiful comment that Boaz makes to Ruth. He gives her a blessing. He says, may the Lord bless you because under his wings you have come for refuge. Chapter 2 is a story about coming to find refuge in God. What does it mean to find refuge? To find refuge, uh, to be in a place of refuge is a condition of being safe or sheltered from danger, from pursuit, or from trouble. Right? A wildlife refuge, we have many of those. They are places where wildlife animals can recover. They don't have the threat of of hunting. They don't have the, the threat of habitat destruction. So they can thrive. They can flourish and recover. A refugee then, is someone who is fleeing from danger, fleeing from crisis, and looking for safety. Chapter 2 of Ruth is a story about how to find refuge in God. When life is hard, when things are confusing, when life is painful, when we have fears, when we are full of uncertainty, when life has trouble, This chapter says we go to God. We go into God for refuge. And I'm going to make two assumptions this morning as we're talking about this and looking at this story. Um, Assumption number one is we all need refuge. And assumption number two is we all take refuge. Everyone without exception faces things that are hard and painful. We experience loss, and some of you are there right now. We all have fears. We all have daily worries and uncertainties. We all have things that we look at in our lives and go, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know where to take this. We all need refuge. And in one way or another, we all take refuge. We take all these things, these sorrows, these fears, these losses, these griefs, we take them somewhere. We have to do something with them. We have these emotions, we have these feelings, they're happening inside of our souls, and we say, I've got to do something with this. There are many examples of where we look uh, for refuge. Some of us, we look for refuge in our work. We throw ourselves into our work, and that's kind of an escape for us. Some of us hear that and go, I need a refuge from my work. That's what I'm looking for because work is so hard and difficult. Some of us take refuge in our kids and pouring our lives into them. Some of us say, I need refuge from my kids. (laughs) We take refuge in entertainment, social media, in sports. We take refuge in addictions of all kinds and in busyness. In all these things, we look to escape. There are places we take refuge. The story of Ruth, chapter 2, says, there is a refuge. It is God himself And Ruth shows us, this story shows us how to find refuge in him. There's three points. They're not in the bulletin this morning, but I'm going to give them to you one at a time. Three uh, stages and three ways um, that this story shows us how to find refuge in God. First, 
When we need refuge in life, Ruth helps us see where, where can we start. Where do we start? We latch on to the refuge of God's providence. Let me explain what I mean by this. It's a little bit of a technical term, God's providence. But what makes the book of Ruth stand out in the Bible, Pastor uh, E.C. mentioned this, is that it seems so ordinary. It seems like an ordinary story. It's beautifully written. It's, it's, a, it's a love story. It's how two people meet. And you can look at it and go, well, that's a wonderful love story. Ruth found a husband in Boaz and they had a child. That's wonderful. But if you, if you read the story, what you notice, what stands out, why is a story in, in the Bible is that there's no miracles. There's no prophetic pronouncement made. There's no direct divine interventions by God. God is so behind the scenes in Ruth. Only twice in the book of Ruth is God said to directly act. At the beginning, in verse 6 of chapter 1, when he brings food to the land of Israel, and at the end, in chapter 4, when he brings life to Ruth's womb. Look at verse 1 again with me. There, the narrator is giving us a little hint that more is happening behind the scenes than Naomi and Ruth could see. Okay, look at verse 1. It says, there's a relative. It just mentions this person. So Naomi had this relative. It was on Elimelech's side, her husband's side. He was a good man. He was a man of character. He was a man of influence. And now the readers would know there are certain laws in the nation of Israel that speak to family property and family line and the responsibility of family members to preserve that. But that's tucked away here in the background in verse 1. The narrator says, there's a man. It's a hint. How could he help? But Naomi, she's either forgotten about this man, it's been 10 years, or she's immobilized by her grief, by her depression and her loss. And we can't blame her for that. You see Naomi, at the beginning of the story, she does nothing. She's just sitting in her grief. But Ruth takes action. She says, well, let me go. Let me go out in the fields and just maybe I'll find favor or grace with someone. And then you look to verse 3. What happens? Well, the way it's written in our, in our translation, different translations handle this differently. Verse 3 says, she happened, she just happened, to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, this same man mentioned in verse 1. She just happened. The literal translation could be, as it turned out, her chance chanced upon Boaz. One commentator says, if you want to translate the Hebrew, it would be, by the stroke of luck. By a stroke of luck. And then in verse 4, it says, later when Boaz arrived, and I love this translation, it's called the Christian Standard Bible, it's a great translation, but here, I don't think it captured all that we need to see in the original language. Here's some other translation says, just then Boaz, at that very moment Boaz, or behold, Boaz. What the storyteller is telling us, what he's, what, what he's trying to say is, wouldn't you know it? Boaz came, this man I was telling you about in verse 1. What's the writer doing? The writer is showing us that God's hidden work is everywhere in this story. God was at work in the famine. He was getting his people's attention. He was at work in the end of the famine. He was providing for his people. 
He was at work in the news of the famine's end reaching Naomi in a faraway land in Moab. He was at work in the exact timing of their return in the harvest, right as the harvest was beginning. He was at work leading Ruth to Boaz's exact field and in the timing of Boaz walking up right at the moment where he would see her and wonder, who is this? God's hidden work is what theologians call his providence. And what it means is that God is not a clockmaker in any way who set up the world and he lets it run and he steps back and he leaves the details to us. That is not what the Bible teaches. Instead, he's intimately at work in everything. Nothing is chance. And this is the starting point for us when we need refuge. Whatever is happening, God is at work. More is happening than we can see, always. Even when we're in a place like Naomi, where she can't see anything. I use the phrase here, latch on. Latch on to God's providence because this is something that it's so hard for us to hold on to in times of trouble, in times of confusion, when our emotions are swirling and we don't know what's happening. Ruth says, don't let go, latch on. Because God is working even when we can't see it. In chapter 2, no one saw what God was doing at the moment. Ruth didn't see it. She said, maybe I'll just go out and something good will happen. Naomi didn't see it. She was immobilized in grief. Boaz didn't know what was happening. He just saw a strange woman in the field. God works in ways that seem so ordinary to us, that are often so behind the scenes. And so when we are in difficulties, afraid and anxious, What do we want? What do we look for? We want direct intervention from God. God, do something miraculous. Send a sign. Show me that you're working. But in Ruth, it is the ordinary acts of God. With food growing, food takes time to grow. A harvest takes time to glean. People meeting at just the right time, two people falling in love. It seems all ordinary. But God brings about through these ordinary acts, exactly what everybody needed, a marriage for Ruth, a grandson for Naomi, and a faithful king for the nation of Israel. That's the story of Ruth. God is working even when we can't see it, and God's providence also tells us that God is writing something better than we would. Providence means God is the author of history, the author of our histories, our stories, down to even the details. And so the writer or the author of Ruth, we don't know who it was. Uh, It could have been Ruth. It was likely a woman. It has a woman's touch to the entire um, story and the narrative. But the author doesn't give away the ending. Not yet. But in the lowest points of the story, what do we see? Naomi and Ruth in their loss, in their return to Bethlehem with nothing. The author is subtly reminding us, giving us hints that God is working. God is writing something better for them than any of them could see. Now think about it like this. Think about if the, if the author was writing the story in the middle of the story, just pauses and says, I'm going to hand the pen over to you, Naomi. I'm going to hand the pen over to you, Ruth. I'm going to hand the pen over to you, Boaz. What might they have written? 
Well, maybe Naomi would have written, Naomi stayed in Moab and she lived happily ever after with her husband, sons, and daughters-in-law. Ruth would have maybe said, Ruth and Malon, her husband, they had 12 sons. They had a big family there in Moab and even Boaz. Later, we learn he was an older man. It appears that he was single. And Boaz probably would have said, but Boaz finally got married and had a big family. You see, each of them likely would have written their suffering out of their story. But in doing so, would have written God out of their story. It was in their hardship and their fears and their loss that God was writing for them a better story, showing them who he was, that it was in their hardship that they would meet him. This was not an easier story, but a better story. What God was writing was a story that would teach them to trust in his faithful love no matter what and make them into people who can demonstrate and show that faithful love to others. I know this morning, many of you are places in your story that are difficult, that are hard. You're looking for refuge. And so let me ask you, if God were to hand you the pen, what might you write? Often, the thing that we'd write, that's our real refuge. Often, the thing that we'd write would be writing God out of our story. God's providence that we latch on to is that God is writing a better story for us than we could ever write for ourselves. So latch on to God's providence. Secondly, we learn what it means to take refuge. The place to start is to look to God's providence, to latch on to it. And God's providence can and should be a source of refuge to us in our time of need. But it can feel... If we're wrestling, if, if, if our emotions are swirling, if anxiety is rising, it can feel somewhat impersonal. Sometimes people uh, who are meaning well might say, God has a plan, right? If you're struggling, if something's happening, uh, God has a reason for this. And although that's a true expression of God's providence, it often doesn't help. It feels too impersonal. It feels too far removed. How do I take refuge in God? Ruth shows us that this is a very personal, this is a very intimate thing to take refuge in God. And she shows us it takes two things. It takes a radically exclusive faith in this radically inclusive God. An exclusive faith in an inclusive God. Ruth, the character of Ruth, she shows us how these two things, that we don't know how can they belong together, how they go together and how they are part of us learning to take refuge in God. Let me explain this. Back in chapter 1, Ruth made a decision to follow Naomi. You can turn there back in chapter 1 if you want to see what she said. In her profession of faith, what she says to Naomi is, I am giving up all other sources of security to follow you and your God. I am giving up all my other sources of identity to be identified with God and his people. She says, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people are my people. Your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die. Naomi says, I'm giving up all other sources of identity and security. I let go of all my other refuges 
and only death will be able to separate me from that promise. This is decisive faith. This is bold faith that Naomi is showing. She relinquished her family, her home, her gods, her right to her own life. She let go of all her other refuges. She banks everything on God alone as her refuge. And if you look at it, honestly, it seems very reckless, very foolish. Why would Naomi do this? Everything was for her in Moab, all hope, all future. And yet she says, that God, your God, Naomi, I'm banking everything on him alone. That's a radically exclusive faith. It's hard for us in our modern pluralistic world, but Ruth here and the rest of Scripture tell us there is only one refuge, and to find refuge in him, we have to let go of all our other refuges. And so for us, it challenges us to think. It's challenged me to think this week. What are my other refuges? Here in Orange County, we have tons of options, places to take refuge. As I already mentioned, in our work, in our accomplishments, there was a conversation I was over, um, overhearing. I was eavesdropping. Yes, I was. I couldn't help it. They were right next to me at Pete's. So I was there at Pete's coffee shop, and I was hearing this conversation between these two men, and the one man was saying to the other man, these guys were probably in their 60s or so, he said, um, he said you, should do, you should do something fun, like you should go on vacation and take some time off. You should retire early. And the other man said, no, the only thing I have in my life is my work. I don't know what I would do. I'm terrified of retirement. It's like, I, don't, I know that's not a good thing to say. I know I shouldn't be saying this, but that's all I have. And as I was listening to this, I wasn't judging this guy at all. I was thinking, wow, that's scary to get towards the end of your life and to say, here, at the last stage of my life, I only have one refuge. It's my work. Well, that, that could be me. It, could, it might not be my work. It might be any number of things. We have so many suburban comforts. We have our entertainment. We have our accomplishments. Ruth says we let go of all other refuges. It's a radically exclusive faith. It's also a radically inclusive God that we come to. Look at verses 10 through 12 with me. In order for Ruth to decide to go out into the fields to glean, she must have known something about what are called the gleaning laws of the Old Testament. What does it mean to glean? Well, in Leviticus 19 and chapter 22, it tells us about God's instructions about gleaning. Let me read from Leviticus 19. He's telling his people, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. And then a few chapters later, he says it again. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. Repeated twice. This is very important to God. And the reason God gives these laws is repeated twice also. What is it? He doesn't say have in, a built, have, have in your society a built-in social welfare system so the poor don't tax you or cause unrest. He doesn't say, do good to the poor so you can feel better about yourself. 
No, he says, I am the Lord your God. This is who I am. This is the very essence of myself. It is my heart. It is my heart for those on the margins. You must provide for them, I command it, because it is who I am. The little that Ruth knew about God, she knew God was a God for outsiders, for nobodies. This is the radical inclusivity of God. God gave her a Moabite. Moabites were not allowed in worship. They were not allowed in the temple. But God gave her great boldness to know that this God was so inclusive, gave her great boldness, but it also gave her great humility. Look at her dialogue here with Boaz in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. She's hard at work gleaning in the fields. He's asking a servant, who is this? The servant says, she's been working hard. She hasn't even rested but a little bit. And then in verse 8, Boaz comes to Ruth and says, listen, my daughter. And then he gives her instructions. He says, don't go into any other fields. Stay here in my field. You are safe. And if you're thirsty, drink from the wells with my young men. And how does Ruth respond? Verse 10, she falls face down, bows to the ground and says to him, why have I found favor with you so that you notice although I am a foreigner. She says, I am an outsider. She falls on her face, bowing. I don't deserve to be noticed, she says. I don't deserve to even be here. What does Boaz say to her? Yes, you do. Look, verse 11 and 12. I've heard about everything you've done. I've heard about your character. I've heard about your care for your grandmother. You deserve to be here. You've shown bold faith. And how does Ruth respond to that? Verse 13, my Lord, I have found favor with you for you have comforted and encouraged your servant, although, second time she said, although, I am not like one of your female servants. This word for female servant is the lowest of the female servants. It's an intentional word that Ruth chose to say, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest of your servants. Ruth says, why have I found favor? I found favor with you. It's all undeserved favor. It's all grace. Twice she says, although I am an outsider, although I am a nobody, you've been gracious. The greatest misconception of Christianity and the thing that Christians, the thing that we forget the most often, is thinking that God will only be a refuge to us if we deserve it or if we earn it because of what we've done or what we haven't done. The greatest misconception of Christianity, the thing we forget most often is that God, the greatest misconception is that we think God excludes those who are not worthy, who are not good enough. And Ruth shows us it's completely backwards. The only ones that God excludes are those who come saying, I'm a somebody, I deserve to be here. I'm an insider because I go to church, because I do good, because I'm better than those other people, because I have the right theology, etc. Did you know that Ruth? It's so surprising that it even exists in the Old Testament. It's the only book written by a non-Israelite in the Old Testament, written by a Moabite woman, one of only two books that bears a woman's name.
a Moabitess woman. This is somebody every Israelite would look at and say, what can I possibly learn from somebody like that? They are an outsider. They are a nobody. They have nothing to offer me. And God says, you have everything to learn from her about what it looks like to take refuge in me. Leave behind all other refuges and come as you are. Although you are a nobody and an outsider, I will receive you by grace. So we latch on to God's providence when we need a refuge. We learn what it means to take refuge. It takes a bold and exclusive faith in this radically inclusive God. And we might be saying, okay, I'll latch on. I'll have that kind of faith, that kind of humility. I'll be like Ruth. And that might work for a little bit. And then we'll be wondering, how? How can I latch on? I can barely hold on. I feel like letting go. How do I get this kind of bold and humble faith that Ruth had? Is it just be like Ruth? The answer is no. That's not the message here. We need to look more closely at Ruth herself. Because when, when the daily struggles hit, sometimes there's just daily anxieties and emotions and things happening in our lives. We have to do something with them. And when the bigger moments hit, the bigger difficulties and trials and troubles and fears come rushing in to our lives. In our circumstances, we don't know what's going to happen. In that moment, in those moments, what are we looking at? I know what I often am looking at. I'm looking at whatever bad emotion it is, whatever thing that is swirling out of control, whatever worry or anxiety I have, and I'm thinking, what is going on with this? When is this going to go away? How will this be solved? How can I solve it? I'm looking at whatever's happening, or I'm looking at myself and going, why can't I handle this? What's going on? What am I going to do with this? The remarkable thing about Ruth is what she looked at. Even more remarkable than her faith and her humility. This is where her faith and humility came from. It's what she looked at. Not at her situation. It was terrible. Really bad. There was no real hope, humanly speaking, for Ruth. She did not look to herself. She said, I'm a nobody with nothing. Where did she look? The more that Ruth looked at the strength and the kindness of Boaz, you see that? The more bold she became. And the more humble she became, the more safe she felt, the more at peace she was, the more she said, I think I can trust God in this. And so you ask me, where can I find such a combination of kindness and strength like Boaz in this story? Well, Boaz is, is a picture of the one God sends for those who take refuge in him. You know, when, when Ruth came home at the end of the story, and she came home with all this food, and Naomi was like, where did you get all this food? What happened? Whose field were you in? And she erupts in this benediction, this blessing. It's almost like a light of hope is lit in Naomi. For the first time, she sees maybe there is a future. Look at it again with me. It's in verse 20. She saw it. She said, may the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living and the dead. There's a debate about this passage. Who hasn't abandoned their kindness to the living or the dead? 
She's blessing Boaz. But then she says, he has not abandoned his kindness. Is that the Lord or is that Boaz? The best answer I can tell is yes. It is the Lord's strength and kindness as seen in the character of Boaz. That's how we're meant to read the character of Boaz. God has sent us a Boaz, a greater Boaz. God has sent us his son, Jesus, in whose strength and whose kindness we can take refuge. Let me show you what this looks like. When life is swirling out of control, when we don't know where we're going to take refuge, two things we can look at. One, look to Jesus. Look at how he notices us. Look at how he notices us. In verse 5, when Boaz arrives, he sees Naomi. He says, whose young woman is this? It's a strange question. He doesn't say, who is this? He says, whose young woman is this? At the time, for women in a patriarchal society, it was all about which man they were attached to. That would tell you their status and position in society. Whose is she? He says. In Paul Miller's book on Ruth, A Loving Life, he lists 16 levels of social status in the ancient Near East, from the king all the way down to the lowest of servants. A female foreigner was the lowest you could get in the ancient world, the most vulnerable, the most needy, the last person anyone would notice. That's why Ruth says, why have you noticed me? And then did you catch what Boaz calls Ruth next? He says, you are not a nobody. In verse 8, he says, my daughter. This is the most tender and compassionate thing he could say to her. You are not a nameless woman. You are not your present, a nobody, a foreigner. You are not your past. You are not a Moabitess. You're one of us. You belong with us, with me, in my family. This is unheard of for a man to say this to a foreign woman in this time. What this is telling us is God, he notices us. He pays attention to us in our need, in our fears. He knows. Like Boaz, he's come down to us to where we are at so that we would take refuge in him as daughters, as sons. Just like the story of Ruth happened out of the limelight in Bethlehem, God came into our world in a way that no one noticed. As a baby born in a stable in Bethlehem, God became unnoticed by us so that we would know we are noticed always by him. Isaiah 53, in describing the suffering servant to come, says he would have no form, no majesty, that we would even look at him. He'd be despised. He would be rejected. And so this tells us that Jesus knows what it means to be unnoticed. He knows how that feels, even to be unnoticed to feel that you've been abandoned by God himself as he cried on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you notice me? When we are struggling and we just need somebody to talk to for refuge, what kind of people do we look for? Isn't it the kind of people who have gone through something that we have gone through, something similar, so they can identify with our experience? They know how hard it is, right? Jesus says to us, not only do I notice you, I know what it means to suffer, to be weak, to be tempted, to look for refuge in other things. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. 
Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. In our times of need, Jesus notices, he knows, and he says, come for refuge. Come find mercy and grace. I know exactly what you need. We look at how Jesus notices us And lastly, we look at how he shields us. In verses 8 and 9, Boaz tells Ruth, Don't leave my field. I have ordered the young man not to touch you. And there he was guarding Ruth against the abuse that was likely for her as a foreign woman on her own. And he says, You can drink. Drink from the jars that my male servants are filling. He says, Stay close, Ruth to my workers. I've ordered them to protect you. Boaz is protecting Ruth. He's shielding her. This is what a refuge does. This theme verse for this chapter, chapter 2, verse 12, where Boaz says, Ruth, you have come under the wings of God to take refuge. The wings of God, that's another picture of what it means that he is a refuge. It's used twice in the, it's used multiple times in the psalm. Psalm 91, it's a bird It's the image of a bird in whose wings you take refuge. It's a shielding. It's a covering. It's a protecting. It's a picture of how a mother bird protects and shields their young. As I was looking into this, trying to understand this image and this picture, doing a little searching, there's a a video. You can find a video of a hen from India. It's crazy. Uh, But this hen in in India, you have this, this video, and she's covering her little chicks as it's raining. She's covering these little chickens and she's just standing there and walking with them and they're walking underneath her. It's, it's very cute. Maybe the new thing will be chicken videos instead of uh, cat videos. I don't know. And there's a story out there uh, of, of a hen. Um, it's told in many different versions. Some people say this happened in Yellowstone, that it's a true story. I found maybe the source is a Nigerian folktale, the story of the hen. The best I can tell, maybe this is the source. I found this um, in a book of, of African folktales. It says there was a young Nigerian boy named Olu who had a pet white hen. And they were constant companions. That was his favorite pet. One day, he couldn't find his hen. And the days went by, the weeks went by, and he's like, where did she go? Three weeks went by, the hen returned, and she came with seven little chicks. So she was out guarding her nest. Her babies were hatched. She brought them home. One day in the dry season, in the village, some older boys set a fire to the bush. This was how they got out all the small antelopes and the rabbits, and they funneled them in so they could hunt them for food. When the fire was over, this boy Olu noticed a pile of feathers burnt and charred. It was his favorite hen. And so he was devastated. He walks over to the hen And he notices that the feathers are still moving. And he hears chirping. The little baby chicks are inside. The mother hen had spread her wings so the chicks could live. Jesus used this picture himself. In the book of Matthew, chapter 23, he said, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So see, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus says, as a mother hen, I came to take the worst on myself, so you would never have to take it, to shield you from your greatest dangers. I am a shield. I am a shield for God's judgment against all the ways that we look for refuge in other things. I am a shield for everything and against everything that the curse of sin sin brings into our lives. Sorrow, condemnation, guilt, shame, loneliness, fear, and anxiety. Jesus says, I am your shield. When a hen spreads her wings over her chicks, she's saying, you will get to my chicks over my dead body. And this is what Jesus has done for us. He says, nothing can get to you unless it comes through me first. Nothing. Everything that gets through me then is for your good and for my glory. Though you can't see it often, you can trust me. Take refuge under my wings. Friends, take refuge. He notices. He knows. He is your shield. I know that's a lot to think about, but I have to close with a very important application here for us. I felt like I just couldn't let this go. And that is this. The Christian who finds refuge in God, the church who finds refuge in God, is especially equipped to give refuge to other people. In Deuteronomy 24, when God is talking about these laws of gleaning, he says, leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. What Deuteronomy is saying, those who have found spiritual refuge in God, who know he he has noticed them, he knows them, he shields them, they are best equipped to identify with those who are in need of physical refuge the refugee, the foreigner, the widows, and the orphan, the most vulnerable, those whom nobody notices, those who get the gospel, they notice. Those who were nobodies, those who came empty-handed, and God who has sent his son in order to shield us and to bring us in, we have a special heart for those whom the world overlooks. And so we ask these questions. Who goes unnoticed in our communities, in our world? Who needs shielding? Who needs refuge? And so I found this picture. I've been trying to wrap my mind around the migrant caravan that's been coming up uh, all the way from Honduras and Central America, all the way through Mexico, thousands of miles, and they're there on our border. And I know it's a complicated situation. What should, what should a, a nation do? I don't have the answer to that, but I've been trying to understand their story. Who are these refugees? And I found this picture. There's many. I, I thought maybe if I look at the pictures, I look at least vicariously through, through pictures into their eyes, um, maybe I'll understand who they are, where they're coming from. And I found this picture of somebody down in Tijuana reading the Bible. Somebody gave them uh, that Bible. And I wondered, what if he's reading the book of Ruth? And I wonder, what if he's wondering, is there anybody like Boaz 
for us, for me. Friends, as Christians, we are called to notice the unnoticeable, to love the refugee, the orphans, and the widow. So I know the answers are complicated. What does that mean? But could I appeal to you to pray for them? They're not the only refugees in the world. Pray for refugees. Pray for those who flee persecution for their faith. And consider how you might help refugees. Because God is our refuge. May we be the kind of people who can give refuge to others. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this story. And I pray that whatever we're facing right now, whatever kind of storm is swirling about, whether it's inside of our, of our hearts, whether it's happening all around us in our circumstances, I pray this story might give us a strength in faith. I pray that we might latch on to the truth that you are doing something we cannot see. And I pray whatever's happening in our lives, that we would look to you, that we would look to you and know that we are not forgotten, that you notice and you know, and that we can trust you to shield us. We can trust you to protect us. Meet us, your people, as we come for refuge in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.